Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 9th, 2021, and it seems like the saga that is Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm is the gift that keeps on giving. The latest development was a surprise labeling change only a few weeks after the product was approved. Sarah, you took a look at this for us. Yeah, so um, yesterday, um, Biogen announced they, um, in conjunction with the FDA, updated the labeling, um, essentially to say that the drug should be initiated in patients with mild cognitive impairment or mild disease. Um, Initially, obviously, everyone was pretty surprised that Biogen got a very broad kind of general label that it was indicated for Alzheimer's disease because the trial really only studied patients in the mild um, course. And, you know, there was even screenings involved to kind of verify sort of state of disease. But um, the labels there, I think the initial reaction from everybody about this change, maybe at first people thought, oh, this is a big deal. And I think for payers potentially, you know, it will be, or it gives them enough leverage to make it a big deal on the payer side if they want to. But if you actually like pay very close attention to the language, there's still um, that broad sentence at the beginning, just saying it's indicated for Alzheimer's disease. And even when I inquired with FDA about this, they also indicated that, um, you know, it will be appropriate in some cases, you know, for um people to get it at different states um, of the course of the illness because of the progressive disease. So um, it seemed like to me a little bit like FDA was sort of trying to make an adjustment to appease people who were um, frustrated with the initial label. But at the same time, you know, people I talked to still feel like there's enough flexibility for prescribers and so forth who want to prescribe it for people outside of the mild state to do that. And um, of course, obviously, under practice of medicine, doctors sort of always have the flexibility for to do off-label prescribing. But here, it doesn't even seem like it would necessarily even be considered off-label by the FDA. Um, but it, it's pretty interesting because in the, the way FDA, I mean, FDA didn't um, really publicize the move it, itself. Um, they certainly responded and gave statements to the media when asked, but Biogen was the one that announced it. FDA just sort of quietly updated all the relevant documentation on their website, but yet their sort of justification for making the change was that they got a lot of pressure that people were confused and needed clarity. In my mind, if, you know, physicians and the public is confused and need clarity, particularly on a topic that's been so highly publicized as this, and FDA's made other various attempts to be very public, you would think they might try and like, you know, they do things all the time where they send out sort of communications more directly to physicians or um, obviously press releases, <laughs> press conferences. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit strange because they didn't seem to want to be overly public about the change, yet the change seemed to be made to for like a race particular public communication reason. <laughs> um, the other thing that's a little bit interesting is they seem to be suggesting that to some degree they always intended the drug really to be largely initiated in this more mild population because the clinical study section of the original label um, outlined the population that was in the clinical trials. Um, Although I looked back 
at that yesterday and I didn't see any really like prescriptive language about then what that means in terms of use of the drug. And, um, you know, when the drug was on the day the drug was approved, they held a press conference and reporters asked them about the broad label. And they really seemed to defend the idea that um, kind of based on the way the mechanism of action and the amyloid hypothesis works, um, they didn't see any reason why if it worked in the mild state, it wouldn't be useful in other states. So there's definitely a little bit of confusion in my mind, I think, that still lingers around um, their thinking here. But I, I think like the, the, the bottom line is most people see this as, you know, a positive move in the sense that um, FDA is sort of recognizing um, maybe they didn't make the right call here. Um, the, the problem, I think, for a lot of people is that then it sort of highlights that mistake um, and, and admits to it in a way that's also not helpful, right? Um, and people are, and I guess what people are, were telling me is it's not that they don't want FDA to, to come forward and admit to mistakes and take corrective action, particularly corrective action that some people think will have a positive public health benefit. Um, it's just that they worry that this this can this can almost like exacerbate the public health trust sort of fallout in the agency over this approval because it's um, perhaps a more direct admission than the agency has ever um, indicated in the past that maybe they didn't do something that was very clearly following the evidence they had. That's a, a very interesting uh, point. Uh, um, you know, Sarah, I remember uh, I think it was the uh, Wellbutrin uh, XL. Uh, Generics were sort of kind of FDA, uh, you know, when they had to uh, withdraw some of those. It was very, very straightforward that we sort of made a mistake in uh, um, in approving these, and uh, you know, we should have used a uh, a different methodology uh, um, to begin with. So, uh, um, you know, here's what we're doing uh, doing instead. Whereas here, you know, they explicitly said, you know, on the on the press call at the time of approval, we're sort of go, going beyond the clinical trials. And then they sort of try and quietly kind of uh, walk it back to, you know, clarify that they're you know, sticking with the clinical trials, although they're still not uh, quite including all the screening criteria that the clinical trials did in terms of who the uh, the target population should uh, should be. It's very uh, it's very strange that they sort of kind of uh, um, are uh, um, uh, in uh, in all nearly all aspects of sort of kind of their their rollout of the uh, um, of the approval. They're uh, they're just not being as forthcoming as. Uh, they have been, uh, you know, in many sort of controversial instances in, in the past. It's just a, uh, um, you know, not uh, um, something that uh, um, I would have expected uh, from them had they, um, you know, kind of released all the documents all, all at once and, you know, have done, uh, um, you know, uh, done that. You know, they, they wouldn't have prevented through kind of a criticism. There are people who just don't think that uh, the data is uh, um, uh, is sufficient to uh, to get the drug approved and, you know, FDA disagrees and, um, you know, there's just going to be a scientific, uh, um, you know, uh, not meeting of the minds on that. But uh, the way they've handled it in terms of sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, saying one thing and then sort of quietly reversing themselves just doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't give you a lot of confidence in their decision making. Right. And I, I think, um, you know, this is coming off of, you know, a year of the COVID pandemic and people, I think, and FDA sort of having some ups and downs with the public and trust of their actions. Obviously, there have been like some really high points. I think people have generally been incredibly praiseworthy of 
their, the standards they laid out for the COVID vaccines and the process they took um, in, in terms of approving them and holding advisory committees and so forth. And then there were also, you know, decisions that were quite controversial um, as well during COVID, hydroxychloroquine, convalescent plasma and so forth, where there was um, seen as a lot of political interference from the Trump administration. So, um, as you know, sort of this idea of like how independent FDA needs to be from politicians and so forth has been quite revived pretty strongly <laughs> over the last couple of years. You know, interestingly, one of the people I spoke to for this article, um, Holly Fernandez-Lynch, I reached out to her because um, she and some colleagues had wrote a pretty interesting article we've highlighted before kind of pushing back a little bit on this idea of how independent the FDA can be and that, you know, to some degree, FD, we should expect FDA to respond to certain types of political um, whims or, you know, society sort of desires. Um, and, you know, she talked a little bit about how she sees this situation as quite a bit different from some of the things she worried about with the Trump administration, where, you know, you really had these like political leaders kind of banging on the doors and just saying, like, we're in charge, do what we tell you. <laughs> um, and in this situation, like, it's clear there was some political pressure, you know, maybe sort of this, some obviously probably came from Congress here, but some of it was more of like that small P, as she described it, you know, political pressure just from patient groups and so forth um, to get get this drug out there. And in her mind, to some degree, you know, particularly in making this change, you know, maybe this is the kind of pressure we want FDA to respond to, you know, we don't want them to just dig in their heels and, you know, not respond when maybe this sort of pressure does reveal they made a mistake. And, you know, she also talked about other times where, you know, she felt like there are particularly legitimate th times when the political um, bodies of government should be overseeing FDA, including like in this case, you know, this drug was given accelerated approval that was seen as controversial. Um, controversial use of the pathway and well congress kind of created that accelerated approval pathway right so they sort of should have an oversight role of saying you know is this a use of it in the way we intended or when this product goes through accelerated approval you know overseeing to make sure biogen follows through on sort of the the promise of accelerated approval which is you get accelerated approval and then you really do have to confirm that benefit or kind of go. Um, and, you know, and so there are places here where, you know, she would argue, you know, we do want the politicians to be having a close eye. Um, again, there's also been this question that's percolated for a while now, going back to, I think, when the advisory committee preview documents were released, at least about where FDA and Biogen a little bit too close on this approval and not acting like a regulator and regulatee and more like partners in trying to get the drug approved. Um, so this is just a really complicated dynamic for the agency. And unfortunately, I think people I talked to were like, you know, not trying to be too hard on FDA because like, yes, we do think this was a good move, but it's just, unfortunately, there's like, they were just in a situation here where there's like no way, like for most people that this could happen and like they would get like a huge round of applause. They've just sort of it's sort of this whole situation is just sort of been botched in so many ways that just this almost just exasperates the negative PR 
Yeah, I don't. I, I think I've heard a lot of FDA people say that they don't do that. You don't go to that job looking for applause or praise for your for your work. But but I, I Sarah, I heard you say a couple of times now the word mistake. So are is this considered a mistake that FDA tried to fix, or is it a clarification? Is it just? I mean, you know, we 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 had this discussion now in the last few minutes about how. We really, you know, the label itself, the indication itself, itself may not have actually changed all that much. I mean, it's a, is this a, a clarification? Is this lip service to say, hey, we did something? I mean, you know, what, what are we talking about here? Right. I think that's um, a question that is probably a little bit in the eye of the beholder, right? Because if you see FDA's language around what they did, they seem to be using the word like clarification a lot, right? Um, <laughs> I think wanting to downplay the extent of the change to some extent. Um, you know, I've seen other people reported as, you know, a pretty big shift in the labeling. Um, so I think it's hard to say. I mean, again, I think a lot of people see this as a pretty big omission of an initially poor decision by FDA, but right, I think you can <laughs> sort of spin this in different ways depending on how you want to view it. And it may also depend, you know, people I talked to said, um, and Jess Merrill wrote more about this for script, but talked about how, you know, in some ways the label, the label itself doesn't have as much influence as on physicians and prescribing practices as we sometimes think. And mm -hmm. the place where it really matters is on the payer side. And for payers, they do think um, who are grappling with, you know, what we now know is a particularly high price drug with a huge patient population. They think the tweak here could be very significant in terms of giving them the leverage or the ability to res restrict coverage. It's, you know, it's much harder for them to say no or limit it to a particular patient population when the FDA very explicitly said it's for everybody. Once you have the the language around who it should be initiated and in, that should help them um, a bit. So I think you can kind of view it both ways, which is mm -hmm. in some ways they maybe didn't really um, narrow the label as much as people would like to believe, but that at the same time, it could in practice first um, lead to that narrowing in the real world of who actually gets the drug. And and that brings us back to the off-label use discussion. I mean, I, I'm guessing then it's going to be up to the payers to kind of figure out what counts as uh, what would be considered off-label use based on that indication. And, you know, I mean, I, I mean the, the, the FDA, I think, is assuming that this is going to be used in high in like really specialty settings with Alzheimer's experts in facilities. And they're going to be the, you know, it's not going to be like uh, you know, general practitioners who, you know, you know, administering this or anything like that. So, you know, you could see it to where they, you know, they, they make a call, you know, I mean, saying like, oh, well, you know, that I think my patient would help, you know, with Alzheimer's, you know, they may not be considered, you know, uh, you know, mild, you know, you know, the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, be, be in the indication, but, you know, they might consider just giving it to them anyway because they think it might help. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's going to be up to the payers then to kind of make that decision, not necessarily right. the FDA. I mean, the big payer um, that's going to have to grapple with this is Medicare because of the age of 
mm-hmm. this population. And I'd have to imagine to some degree, Medicare breeds a little bit of a sigh of relief um, when they saw this news. And who knows if behind the scenes, perhaps there was some pressure <laughs> from them to do this as well. Um, because, you know, while the public in general is used to, I think, Medicare, for the most part, kind of rubber stamping FDA's um, drug decisions, they don't have to. And um, the price of the product and the the, the Alzheimer's population um, broadly would have, I mean, would just be really financially catastrophic to Medicare. So we'll we'll have to see going forward if Medicare does anything to try to, again, restrict the population in line with this labeling or in some other way. Um, Because, you know, if this was a $5 drug, perhaps the conversation would be different. But the price in conjunction with what many people feel like is kind of inadequate data um, has really just exasperated the frustration of um, critics who think FDA shouldn't approve this, shouldn't have approved this. Yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast uh, before, but it uh, certainly seems like Biogen was uh, surprised by the breadth of the label. You know, they they have sort of uh, uh, their launch price, a very sort of, kind of uh, high, what you'd think of sort of, kind of as, a, as a specialty uh, to drug, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, five-figure uh, um, price tag there. And, uh, um, you know, they, they very uh, quickly, you know, said that they would uh, provide volume discounts to uh, um to uh, to Medicare, so they were, uh, um, you know, very comfortable to kind of sort of, kind of uh, um, you know letting the, letting uh, the the broad patient uh, population uh, not just for kind of you know ring up a massive uh, um, a massive bill. So it didn't seem like that was their kind of their uh, um, their launch uh, strategy was to sort of have it sort of kind of so uh, so broadly used as perhaps some people uh, some people feared. And this sort of, kind of will uh, I think give uh, um, uh, you know give give CMS as you were saying. Uh, uh, Sarah, perhaps a little more uh, um, justification as we're going to uh, to dial it back to sure, you know, perhaps where uh, um, where Biogen had to, had expected it to be to begin with. Yeah, I think this situ this this situation with the change labeling is probably much more helpful for Biogen than the FDA. I think um, in that the the pricing of the product becomes a little bit more palatable, at least to some people when the population is a bit more narrow. Again, as we sort of have talked about before, there's going to be some people that, you know, again, completely believe this drug just shouldn't be approved um, and probably would not be satisfied even if the price was cut in, you know, to like an eighth of it or so forth. But I I do think this is a bit helpful for them and probably more helpful to them than the FDA. It's interesting, again, you know, this is not going away anytime soon, so we'll be uh, we'll be watching closely as the you know for the next development. Next up is a look at the mid-year new drug and biologic approval count. The Center for Drug Evaluation and Research set a new high over the last decade with 27 new molecular entity and novel biologic approvals from January through June. The previous high had been 25, which was set last year. And with 36 user fee goals for the second half of the year, the potential is there for another high full year approval total. Among the issues that could hold things back, however, are the FDA's ability to conduct conduct facility inspections. Many of them were put on hold during the pandemic, and now with restrictions loosening in the U.S. and other countries, more in-person visits could be possible, allowing for application decisions to be finalized. 
really, who's going to complain about more approvals? But, you know, this, this sounds to me a little like what we saw with the Office of Generic Drugs a couple of years ago, where there was a large bubble of pending applications that built up. The agency reached like record approval levels, and then the numbers kind of tailed off as they worked through that and got all those applications out the door. So uh, I'm curious, do you, do you think we're in kind of a COVID-related bubble here, or is this, you know, are we, are we going to see like kind of sustained, uh, you know, sustained approval levels here going forward? I, I think it uh, depends on sort of what uh, happens with the trials that sort of got caught in the middle of COVID. So kind of how quickly do those sort of programs recover and sort of kind of the applications come in in terms of sort of kind of the uh, the long-term sustainability of this, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, massive wave of uh, uh, high uh, um, approval counts. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I should note sort of for uh, another sort of uh, bit of a uh, uh, down uh, down news, if you will, was the sort of, kind of the the approval rate dipped slightly uh, um, this uh, um, this half uh, um, this half year. Uh, we have a, uh, a great package from uh, our colleague Bridget Silverman. She did a story and an infographic and uh, just sort of a table of uh, pending applications that uh, um, you know we'll link to in uh, in show notes. But uh, um, you know one of the things she did notice was that sort of, kind of the uh, the actual approval rate. Uh, um, Declined a little bit, so I don't know if that's uh, just a function of just sort of uh, um, the inspections that you were talking about, uh, um, Derek, or uh, um, that uh, it uh, um, you know it's sort of kind of trouble ahead in terms of sort of the uh, the overall quality of the applications that are uh, they're coming in. But that's for kind of one uh, one cloud on the horizon to uh, to watch, uh, along with the um, the questions for kind of how many applications will FDA be getting, uh, you know, because of the pandemic and other kind of uh, challenges to the uh, the pharma, pharma business model. One thing I'm kind of curious about, um, I think it was at a bio um, panel, Peter Marks made a comment that, you know, FDA is a little bit hesitant to bring a lot of people back to campus because they're so busy right now and um, they feel like if they came back to campus, they'd actually lose some of their momentum and work time because that some work time would be translated to commuting time. And I'm not sure if he was largely focused on people working on the COVID response or not, but it will be interesting to me to see, like, is it how much like the work from home versus working at FDA um, balance impacted productivity at all? And be pretty interesting to see if, um, you know, if the work from home lifestyle actually helps them be more productive. But also, again, I think we've talked about this a lot um, over the past year or so, whether that's actually sort of a um, long-term maintainable pace for for FDA staff, I think, is questionable um, in terms of staff retention and burnout and so forth. Yeah, I'm glad you got that. Uh, brought that up, uh, Sarah. It's a uh, um, uh, an odd note for them to uh, to sound because they had been, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, been saying like, oh, you know, we're working too hard. We can't sort of kind of sustain this. And then we're sort of like, then they're saying like, well. We kind of want them to sustain that, uh, that <laughs> level of effort. So, uh, um, you know, obviously, sort of kind of they're uh, they're proud of their uh, um, their achievements and don't want to uh, um, don't want to slow down. But uh, I think they do have, as you're saying, you're kind of have to acknowledge that uh, at some point people just get uh, get tired and burnt out, and uh, you have to sort of kind of can't uh, can't work those 12 hour days anymore. Yeah. Was, was there anything else in the numbers that that stuck out to you? I know there was. I, I thought it was really interesting that you know. I guess we shouldn't be really surprised that. They're like infectious disease drugs. Uh, there were several of them that have goals in the second half of the year. 
Um, cancer was still number one, but you know, second was infectious diseases followed by metabolic and dermatology drugs. I mean, was there anything else that stuck out? No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're all we're all eagerly anticipating the uh, the 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 uh, the second the second half of the year to see if anything to see what uh, what the final number is going to be. I know we're we're all eagerly anticipating that. Finally, today we're going to discuss a policy policy shift at the Federal Trade Commission that could affect the pharma industry. The FTC has made it easier for staff to begin investigation and enforcement actions against pharma companies and pharmacy benefit managers. Staff now are allowed to issue civil investigative demands and subpoenas targeting the industries, and uh, authorizing the investigations is expected to make the process more efficient and avoid political delays. One area expected to be targeted is pharma rebate walls. This also comes uh, with President Biden's executive order that was announced today that uh, to promote economic competition, which could allow, uh, which will direct uh, the federal government to look at drug pricing issues like pay for delay settlements and so forth. So, where do we stand on that? I mean, where do we stand on this? I mean, should uh, should the industry be worried that the government's going to start snooping around in a you know? larger or more you know more uh larger capacity i don't know what i don't know what you call it what do you call it <laughs> i mean it seems like um they should definitely expect a more activist ftc um and i think the ftc has been pretty clear on that you know this new ftc and pharma and beyond um i, I think um D- david balto told brenda um he thinks rebate walls are going to get some scrutiny and i mean that would seem particularly interesting because it could put both pharma companies and PBMs under the spotlight. Um, And the Biden administration still sort of has to figure out what they want to do with a lingering um, Trump administration role on the rebate topic. Um, It seems like it'll be a little bit easier for FTC to just even collect money from companies, although I think sometimes some of those fines and things are just a little bit of like slaps on the wrist to companies. They don't often end up being a, a huge sum of money that to, that maybe are really motivating to change practices. But, um, you know, we'll have to see like if they, what, what trends maybe oftentimes like the FTC or these enforcement agencies kind of pick like one issue they want to kind of make a lot of progress in and then go after that in multiple places. <laughs> so it'll be, I think that's, will be really interesting is like what part of the, the pharma competition world do they want to focus on and make their mark on going forward yeah we'd had a story a couple uh weeks ago with uh, uh peter uh orzag the uh, uh obama administration uh, um official saying that uh um you know from his perspective that uh drug pricing is uh less of a political concern than uh you know sort of an ftc crackdown on uh farmer mergers and you can uh, um you can certainly uh you know see his perspective that's sort of that uh you know, this is a more you know behind the scenes uh, thing that's kind of that the uh, you know drug uh, drug pricing gets a lot of drum beats on uh, on Capitol Hill, but uh, um, you know the the change in sort of kind of uh, um, uh, scrutiny can sort of be uh, undertaken much more administratively and you know sort of without uh, as much uh, political resistance. So uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of kind of uh, uh, whether there's more merger scrutiny, whether there's more business practice scrutiny. Uh, um, obviously, it's sort of that this is all subject to court challenge, and uh, FTC is, uh, is well aware of sort of kind of their uh, simultaneous positions, sort of given uh, um, 
uh, you know, given sort of their, their recent track record in, uh, um, in court, but uh, even just for kind of the, uh, the hassle factor for, uh, for companies, uh, you know, if they uh, <laughs> uh, do expect to eventually prevail, could it discourage sort of some more of the, uh, the more aggressive practices or sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, perhaps more dubious uh, uh, merger propositions. Yeah, I like that the hassle factor where you, you have to think about think ahead of time. You're going into some of these deals. You know what what are we going to have to, you know how what are we going to have to deal with it in terms of the the federal response or reaction uh, to something like this. Right, and obviously you know people always talk about kind of like headline risk or just the risk right of having your name sort of dragged to the headlines in a you know um, negative way can sometimes. Um, be just as big of a risk to companies as any actual enforcement action actually coming down on them. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's what it comes down to is it just, you know, if it causes everybody to think think twice or pause a little bit. And maybe that's maybe that ends up being kind of the the, you know, the rein in that, uh, you know, that FTC ends up wanting to wanting to uh, to see at this point. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.